healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Eric Bricker, the man behind the healthcare blog, A Healthcare Z. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. You bet. So uh, you've done this once before, but here's the game plan. What we seek to do here on this show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you want to help with? Yeah, sounds great. All right. So I'm going to read a brief bio about you so the audience has a little bit of context and we'll jump into it. So A Healthcare Z is a healthcare finance video journal from Dr. Eric Bricker. Dr. Bricker is an internal medicine physician and former co-founder and chief medical officer of Compass Professional Health Services. Compass is a healthcare navigation service that grew to 2,000 plus clients, including T-Mobile, Southwest Airlines, and Chili's Maggiano's Restaurants. Compass was acquired by Alight Solutions in July 2018, and Alight is a 10,000-person employee benefits and HR outsourcing company that's separated from Aon in 2017. I want to first congratulate you. You're the first person we've uh, interviewed twice on the show now. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And the reason is you're no longer uh, CEO of Compass, which was acquired by Light. So you're doing something new, something that I I think is, is great and exciting, which is an educational video blog. So tell us about this new project, A Healthcare Z, and why you decided to do this and, and what you're trying to accomplish. A Healthcare Z is a video healthcare finance blog. And it is one, it's in video on purpose because at the end of the day, video is a much more effective way to communicate than writing or audio alone, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And we live in an age, I mean, it's really amazing. This is the first time in human history that we can have almost free instantaneous audio anywhere in the world at any time. I mean, that's really cool. Yeah. And it would be foolish of me not to take advantage of that. So that's one. Two is that in terms of like the content, I found that at Compass, you know, as the chief medical officer of Compass, I was really heavily involved in sales and marketing. It's really what I spent like 90% of my time doing. Right. And so I would be in lots of meetings with brokers and benefit consultants with their employer clients, you know, so the variety of people that would be on their side of the table, HR, CFO, CEO, you know, head of benefits, et cetera. And what I found was, of course, there's always exceptions to this, but almost regardless of the size of the company or the industry, there was just a basic vocabulary and level of understanding that was not there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not their fault. A lot of times these people, you know, I was just meeting with a a major uh, Fortune 500 company back in February. They just kind of asked me to come, you know, talk to their employees and their unions. And one of their benefits managers had been in HR for a long time, but she had been in recruiting. And so she was just kind of like getting up to speed with all benefits. I mean, that's, and that's like night and day, right? It's a whole nother world. So you, Mike, and your colleagues have a lot of wonderful ideas and solutions, but I just saw that the soil that you were trying to plant your ideas and seeds in wasn't so fertile. And I said to myself, well, if I could do something to kind of soften up the beaches and make that 
soil more fertile for folks, that would be worthwhile because I just see so much. I don't think it's, you know, in terms of like where we are now and where we want things to be, literally in terms of the health of our employees, the expense for the employees in terms of their out-of-pocket costs, the expense for the employer in terms of their overall financial performance of their plan, right? Okay, so we're at point A. We want to get to point B. We're, not, we're obviously not there. Not the only limiting reagent, but one of the limiting reagents was really that soil piece. In other words, like if you, Mike, and your colleagues, if you came up with some like fantastic way of describing what you do, like Alakazam, it would not magically make people get it. Right. No. There has to be this sort of foundational understanding. And I'm using sort of the drip approach. And yep. that's why I do typically two to three videos a, uh, a week. They're only about three to six minutes long. And so they're very sort of, you know, bite size, hopefully palatable, if you will. And the good news is, is that it really seems to be resonating in that we probably get anywhere from 10 to 20,000 views a week, primarily on LinkedIn. That's mm-hmm. the major platform that it's viewed on. Yep. And then we get another 1,000, 1,500 folks on the A Healthcare Z website itself. And we're up to almost 1,000 subscribers in just like five months, five and a half months. And the other reason why I do it in a you know, sort of highly iterative you know, vignette fashion is, and I, I think I've made like 91 videos. I'm, I'm up to almost 100, is like guess what? Not all of my videos are going to be good. (laughs) In fact, some of them are like pretty bad. But what's great is, is I can learn from that iterative process. Okay, well, what topics are resonating? What length is resonating, et cetera, et cetera. And then I can, I can learn from that. And and that's been, and that's been highly instructive. In fact, just literally within the past three weeks, we've gotten a lot more viewership than we had in like the three weeks before that, just because I've just make it been making some, some iterations and some tweaks. I think the video platform is incredible. And here we are, you know, I'm, I'm doing an audio platform because I'm a, a podcast junkie myself and, and, you know, love, you know, listening to people and hearing stories, you know, as I, you know, drive all around Southern California. But the video method really is great. And, and one of the things I, I enjoy is the fact that you have your whiteboard there because it's very much like, you know, kind of like being in a classroom, right? You know, and it's just, hey, here's the, here's the lesson for today. And, you know, in addition to hearing the story, it's, you know, you've got some of the key points, you know, written on the board there. So I agree with you. I think the video medium is incredibly powerful. And what's nice, too, is it gives people the flexibility. I would tell you that a significant percentage of the quote unquote viewers just listen to it in their car. Right. Because at the end of the day, you don't have to look at it. So Mm -hmm. this way it gives them the flexibility. The other thing you mentioned is, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a broker, a benefits consultant, or even, you know, an HR leader, right? If you're trying to bring innovative ideas forth and get an employer to make change, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles is that there's this inertia, right, from, from moving away from the status quo. You know, I think what you said is really insightful. A lot of it has to do with ignorance of how things actually work. And I think how dysfunctional the, the system actually is. What you're trying to do here is, is awesome and, you know, hopefully does make that soil a little bit more fertile. And it already has. Let me give you a, a quick uh, vignette. There is a, one of our, uh, you know, viewers and subscribers took my video where I went around my town and I shot spots at each one of the five hospitals in my sort of medium-sized town, right? And the point is, why in the world does my medium-sized town have five hospitals? That's too many hospitals for one town. 
And she actually went to the city. She went to the municipality itself and said, you know, look at this video. And this is a, a nearsight onsite uh, clinic company. And it was helpful mm-hmm. for them to illustrate that if they just let their employees go forth, they will, be, they will essentially be sucked into these five hospitals by what's called supplier-induced demand, where you, know, you just get refer, 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 test, 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 and it just snowballs. And if you can kind of you know, you know, head that off at the pass at the beginning through a nearsight onsite clinic experience, and that will prevent a lot of the unnecessary downstream stuff that's being created by the hospitals in the area. And guess what? It worked. And they were able to make that uh, move forward. So, I mean, you know, go forth and do that, please. You know, however it can be helpful, do it. There are people that have worked in employee benefits, brokerage and consulting for decades and don't know some of that stuff. So, I mean, truly, I, I think it is insightful and educational. If I look at some of the topics that you cover, it seems to me they, they fall into a number of buckets. And I, I'm wondering if this was intentional or, or not, but it seems like a portion of them are healthcare financing, operations, and economics. There are a number of them that cover healthcare dysfunction and actual corruption. A number of them cover consumer education, and, and even a couple you know, cover change management. So did you purposely sort of create those categories or... Uh, you know, how are you, how are you organizing the topics that you're, you're bringing to bear? I would love to say that I had a design or a plan around that. I of course did not, but um, <laughs> what is, I think what the, the reason that it sort of naturally comes that way is that I, I gave a presentation to the, the compass folks fairly early on in our company's history saying, you know, like, you know, healthcare is, it's a, it's a jungle out there. It's a swampy mess that you're trying to navigate. And there's sort of two approaches. You can either like cut down the jungle and pave it right? Which to a certain extent, like single payer would be, right. or you can just get much better at actually navigating the jungle. And to a certain extent, it's probably a combination of the two. It's not all one, it's not all the other. So anytime you're going through a jungle, it's like you need to have those sort of categories of skills that you just described. You kind of have to understand, have a basic understanding of the lay of the land. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, there's the Amazon River. Eventually you're going to need to cross that thing. It's really big, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then there's gonna, then you need to also know about, okay, now there's animals and bugs that are going to try to get you. It's somewhat of a predatory experience. And yeah. so you need, you need to understand that. And so I, th- I think that it's just practically, if you were to, pra- you know, it's like building a house. Like if you were to practically say, okay, well, this is how you build a house. And there are just some practical sort of compartments that you need to have in order to be able to do that. And I, I think it kind of just naturally fell into those compartments because that, those, are, those are the sort of practical categories that you need in order to get from point A to point B. Of all the topics that you've covered and all the things you've learned and provided education on, I mean, for someone who's discovering the, the video journal for the first time, what topics do you think are most important for people to focus on? Yeah, I think that it probably makes sense to do them in just, you know, keep it simple, stupid in chronological order of how I created them. You know, if you just go onto the front page of the website, you can go to, you know, just, you know, load more, load more, load more. You start at the bottom and then you work your way up to the top because they're just, yep. chrono- you know, chrono- reverse chronological order of how I posted them. I can't say that it was, a, it was a grand design, but I will just tell you that sort of intuitively I said to myself, okay, well, I have this goal of trying to make the soil more fertile. You need to do that in a certain sort of, you know, series of steps. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to do that with the way that I laid it out. And I will tell you that it also, to a certain extent, there are going to be 
topics that are going to be of greater interest for folks that are on the the payer side, in other words, on the employer, the insurance carrier, the brokerage side. And there are going to be things that are of more interest on the healthcare provider side. Because believe it or not, I actually have quite a few like doctors and nurses that actually watch this stuff too, because they have no idea. Like as, as much as like there are people within the brokerage or the employer community that don't know this stuff, there's an equal number of people on the dock and hospital side who have no idea about this stuff. I find that fascinating. I mean, can you, can you give us some examples of topics that you'd covered that people on the provider side are going to be ignorant of? Oh, the whole prior authorization one that I just did. I mean, I, I can't tell you. I mean, that thing has almost 10,000 views on LinkedIn. And I can't tell you the number of providers that have either messaged me through LinkedIn or just sent me direct emails and said, that's the coolest thing ever. I had a woman down in Houston say that she showed her father, who's a nephrologist, that video. And he said he, it was awesome and that he learned something about it. And you got to understand, nephrologists are like the biggest nerds of like all doctors. Like they're like <laughs> double pocket protectors, super thick glasses. Like I say that in a very endearing sort of way. And I'm like, shoot, if I can win over a nephrologist, that's like the best thing ever. And, and it was, so what happened was, is back in the 90s when there was managed care, all this pre-search stuff was around. It was all done by fax machine, yada, yada, yada. But then... With the whole, you know, the, with the whole managed care backlash, it went away. Now, it's, it's, you got to understand for all of your Californians, all the California listeners, that of course, most of the America, most of America is not like California. It's not like right. California. It's right. not, you know, HMO, Kaiser, yada, yada, yada. So it's not like that. So I can see how folks in your, your neck of the woods are much more familiar with this. But in like Georgia and Wisconsin, like it is, so all that prior off stuff, it went away. And it went away for like 20 years. Wow. So you have like a whole generation of people that really didn't live with it all that much. And so now you've got a new, you know, quote unquote, new, newer generation of doctors that are seeing the, the types of prior authorizations and the number of prior authorizations really grow in the past five years. And they don't know. It's just some sort of black box because prior authorization is never even mentioned once during medical school or residency. So no one ever, it's never taught. Sure. And it's like, okay, now all of a sudden I can't get done what I need to have done. And something somewhere is telling me I can't do it. And they don't have the first clue as to what's going on. Yeah. So they were like, oh, I had no idea. There were all these steps. I had no idea that it wasn't even the carrier that did it. You know, you have to understand that most people who work as physicians or in hospitals, they don't even know what self-funding is. Like they don't even realize that it's the employer that's paying the bills. They think it's the insurance company. The sort of rudimentary level of education that needs to happen it's, re it's really all over the place. It's extraordinary. I think we have for decades now kind of put our heads in the sand and just basically said, hey, we're going to outsource healthcare financing to major insurance carriers and we're just going to trust that they'll handle it, right? And that was that. Not to come up with a, with a, with a hokey quote, but, you know, Benjamin Franklin had his whole, you know, poor Richard's almanac and you had all these like, you know, you know saying stitch in time saves nine, yada, yada, yada. One of them is don't watch your laborer and you give him your purse. Meaning if yes. you don't watch the people that are working for you, you might as well just hand them all your money. Yep. And that's exactly what has happened. It is. It is. You know, one of the things we try to do on this podcast is, is talk about root causes to, you know, the underlying healthcare crisis that we have. And I think one of the things that your, your video journal does a great job of is, is uncovering a lot of those root problems as well, right? And, and explaining why we do have such a dysfunctional healthcare system. And so acknowledging that, right? 
all the problems that you've identified uh, and that we talk about too, including all the misaligned incentives. I mean, do you really think employers should be looking to traditional insurance carriers and PBMs that follow the traditional spread pricing model as solutions to manage their healthcare costs? You know, so the short answer is no. And the, the long answer is that everybody acts in their own obvious statement here. Everybody acts in their own self-interest. Yes. And so I think that, you know, you got to go in eyes wide open and really say to yourself, well, where do these organizations, where does their interest really lie? And I think that's where ultimately, when we talk about a quote unquote dysfunctional healthcare system, keep in mind when we say that, we mean it's dysfunctional for the end user, for the patient, okay? It's not dysfunctional for the insurance company. It's not dysfunctional for the hospital. It's not dysfunctional for a lot of the you know, doctors. It's not even dysfunctional for the, a, a lot of insurance brokers. It's highly functional for them. When we say it's quote unquote dysfunctional, we just mean it's quote unquote dysfunctional for the end user, which of course is the correct definition of dysfunctional, right? I mean, if, if the customer is not getting benefited from this, then, then we got a problem here, okay? Ultimately, when you think about, you, you, you mentioned this briefly before, when you talk about the incentives, you really want to take a hard look at it and say, how can I either align the incentives of my, you know, my partners on my healthcare journey such that we are serving the end customer? And if I can't align those incentives correctly, then I need to look for a different partner. And that's really, before you talk about you know, how are you going to do this and the steps and strategy and, and yada, yada, yada. We get, you got to get that. You got to hit them, you know, like, like Emer- I think it was Emerson or Thoreau. So, you know, for every hacking, you know, million hacking at the branches, there's one hacking at the root. And I'm sure you've seen this in your own organization. The alignment is so important. And if you don't have mm-hmm. alignment, then like everything else is just window dressing. And so if you can get the alignment right, then beautiful things happen. And so now, am I going to say that you can never get alignment right with a major carrier or PBM? No, I'm not saying that. The way that it's set up right now, it's not aligned correctly. But, but that's really, if, if you want to strike at the root, you got to figure out a way such that their incentives are aligned with your incentives. Part of the reason that I talk about you know, corruption is that it needs to be in, in not a fictitious way. Literally, when I mean by real it is, you know, and I'm not even going to use the word transparent. It's like, follow the money. Like, where is the money literally going? Why would a carrier offer a self-funded plan a $0 ASO fee? Why would they ever do that? It doesn't happen a lot, but it occasionally happens. Why in the world would they ever do that? The money's got to be coming from somewhere. That's right. So where does the money come from? Are they making so much money on the rebate payments just from like infusion of specialty drugs? that they don't need to charge an ASO fee? And if so, then that's something that we need to talk about. It's literally talking about where is the money. And honest, like, if I were a large employer, I'd be like, you know, you are contractually obligated as a vendor to show me exactly where you're getting all your money. And we're going to have an audit process. And if you don't follow that audit process, I'm going to sue you because I need to know exactly how you're getting paid on what. Yes. Those conversations haven't been happening because, you know, for the most part, I think people have, you know, had their their heads in the sand. The analogy I've used in the past is, you know, it's like if you're if you're a boxer and you're just used to getting hit in the face, after a while, getting punched in the face is kind of normal. You know, it's for and for most employers who have been dealing with, 
you know, high single digits, double digit increases for decades, the annual punch in the face just becomes expected, right? And, and so it becomes hard to think about anything else, about an alternative method where they're not going to get an annual increase in their healthcare costs or how they could structure something that might actually decrease their healthcare costs. I see it day in and day out, that inertia, no matter how much you talk to, to people about the possibilities, the inertia is real and it's, 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 it's a big obstacle. And that's what drives the ultimate prioritization of the company and really of the budget, right? You know, we talk about like the federal budget. It's really like a moral document. Like a, basically a company's budget is basically a moral document. It's like, what do we care about? Right. And the ultimate responsibility is with the CEO. And so, well, I said, you know, I need to soften the beaches with like the HR people. Honestly, a lot of the HR people, get, they get it. And when they go internally and they march it up the chain of command to their CEO, and then it's the CEO who's like, I just don't have time for this. It's the cost of doing business. I hate it. I'm going to complain about it for 30 minutes. I might blow my top and then I'm going to sign the check. And that is going to continue until it can't anymore. And that's why I made that video about debt. Because at the end of the day, you can solve this with just debt. <laughs> so it's like, sure. yeah. I mean, sure. you, you just you pay for it. And when debt is so cheap, I mean, when you're literally using debt for stock buybacks and bonuses, then you're washing in cash. It's very helpful to use multiple sources of input when you're thinking about healthcare. One of the sources that I use is the, uh, the Oak Tree Memos by Howard Marks in your neck of the woods. He used to live in Malibu. I think he sure. still does. Sure. And Howard Marks' memo is like one of the most famous things in finance. The dude is crazy smart. You know, he talks about the quote unquote bubble of everything, right? To a certain extent, the age we're living in now is the bubble of everything. And so all bubbles pop. Eventually, this bubble will pop. And when it does, that's where healthcare is a very counter cyclical business where you'll really see innovation and motivation to change when the next recession comes. And it was the recession in the early 90s that, you know, was the first push for managed care. It was the, you know, the Great Recession that, you know, then caused the push for uh, CDHPs. And then we'll have another recession. I have no idea when that's going to happen. We'll have another recession. And that will then foster the motivation necessary to bring about the next change as well. So at the end of the day, to a certain extent, Mike, you and I just need to be patient. Like, it will happen. I just don't know when. Are you of the opinion that, that we can fix this? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely fixable. I mean, this is, I mean, it's been, it's been done at the individual where an organization or company has the motivation and the skill to do it, mm -hmm. it's doable. I mean, these are solvable problems. There is not a problem in healthcare that is not solvable. All these are solvable problems. And that's where it's like the state of Montana had a problem. Their plan was going to go bankrupt in two years. And so they got Marilyn Bartlett in there and she fixed it. And she totally turned it around. Solvable problem. You know, John Torinus at Serograph, they had a problem. He fixed the problem. The Allegheny School System in Pittsburgh, they had a problem. They fixed the problem. I mean, these are solvable problems. I love it. So, so let's have some fun here then. So if, if you could design a healthcare solution from scratch, what components would it include? Well, where would it start? Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it's one of these things where it is not to use a doctor analogy, but you know, to a certain extent, each employer is a patient. And so the doctor can't just say, hey, take the blue pill for everything. The doctor has to make a diagnosis of what's specifically wrong with the quote unquote healthcare problem of that particular institution mm -hmm. and then prescribe the right kind. I mean, and that's why I love working with brokers because you guys are the doctors. You guys are the doctors. You have to diagnose what that group's specific medical problem is mm -hmm. and then take your pharmacy or you know, different types of operations that you can perform and apply that to the patient. So I will tell you that, you know, roughly 
the quote unquote employer patients tend to fall into some degree of sort of big buckets. And mm-hmm. those big buckets are one based upon concentration of the employees. Are they all in one location or are they spread out? Yep. And if they're all in one location, I will tell you that to a certain extent, you have to say, you know what? The jungle is just so dangerous that we're just going to not go into the jungle at all. And what is the definition of not going into the jungle? It's a nearsight, non-site clinic. And that's what John Torres did at Sarograph is he said, mm-hmm. look, you know, we're, you know, it's, and you make it free. You know, the whole family can use it. You give it, you know, really awesome hours in the morning and in the evening and on the weekends. And you just prevent people from getting caught up in the flywheel of the healthcare system. And, oh, by the way, when you have a nearsight and onsite clinic, you can't just have any physician. You got to have a great physician or a team of physicians or nurse practitioners right. or PAs or whatever. Like, so you yeah. can't just hire a doc and just be like, you know, oh, we, we did it. You got to find somebody who's good. And, you know, you got to pay them. You got to pay them probably, you know, not 200000 You probably got to pay them three or $400,000. Because you want to, you know, it's like, what kind of doctor is going to leave their practice to go work for a company, you know, on-site clinic? So you got to find somebody who's good. You got to pay them yep. well. Yep. But that won't, believe me, that will more than pay for itself. But obviously, if you have a company that has employees, I mean, you know, there's tons of organizations, their employees are spread out all over the country, yada, yada. That's really uh, not feasible for them. There's, you know, concentrated versus uh, spread out. Then like the next situation you have would be like urban versus rural, Right. Yep. There's some companies that just have a lot of people in big cities and suburbs. And you have a lot of people that you have some companies that are, you know, people are kind of in rural places. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that the, for the folks that are in rural places to a certain extent, honestly, that might be where the reference-based pricing might make the most sense. And guess what? That's what Marilyn Bartlett did in Montana. Cause it's kind of rural. The whole yeah. state is. Of course. And here's the reason why you can get away with that. Because it, in oftentimes in rural locations, you don't have these major behemoth medical organizations that in no way, shape, or form are going to compromise with 150% or 200% of Medicare. Yeah. You know, you go into Sutter or Dignity or, you know, Baylor Scott and White in Dallas or Columbia Cornell in New York, whatever, and say, we're going to give you 150% they're, you know, Medicare. They'll be like, yeah, uh, you don't have a network. Full bill charges are 25 grand, and you're going to pay that right now, and you're going to like it. And obviously, that is never going to work. Like, you can never do reference-based pricing, in my opinion, in those places, because the providers would just be like, no, forget it. Whereas yeah. in more rural areas, you would be like, well, if I don't like go along with this and like negotiate with you, like, I won't have any patients because it's a small town. <laughs> like, we just don't have a lot of people. So I think that, the, you know, if you have folks that are in more rural locations, it's totally doable. And that's the whole deal with like direct contracting too. Are you going to do a direct contracting with Sutter or Dignity or Catholic Health Initiatives? I mean, no, they're going to be like, look, you could be a 10,000 employee organization and the amount of patient volume that you would send me is so minuscule that I don't care. So they're not going to do it with you. But in a smaller town, they'd be like, I'll totally tell direct contract with you. And that's why what you do as a broker benefit consultant, what you do is never going away, in my opinion, because you have employers that have different problems and you've got a, a whole sort of suite of solutions and it's not a one size fits all. You have to, you have to say, okay, well, what are, what's my specific patient here? And then what can I match up to, to fix their specific problem? And then the other thing is, is you put it in in a stepwise fashion. You don't give people all 10 doses of chemo at once. You will kill the patient. That's right. You have to space right. it out over time. And you're like, okay, so this, we're going to do this this year. And then in two years, we're going to do this and this year. And you're going to stepwise your way in. And by the way, that's exactly what John Torres did at Sarah Graf. He did not do everything at once. He stepped it in 
over like five years. And, and guess what? It totally works. I mean, these are solvable problems. And it's funny. I, I had somebody a couple of years ago tell me that, you know, the, the brokerage consulting market was going to be, you know, disrupted completely. And because we were an unnecessary intermediary and I laughed a little bit because I, I thought, well, that's if you assume that every employer is the same and they're not right. So for, for that reason, and because they all have different struggles, challenges, and they're different puzzles to solve. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think we're going away either. You recently did a post on Haven Healthcare, which, yep. which to me, uh, I thought was, was great because you called out a, a conflict of interest that, you know, Warren Buffett may have with one of his own companies. Forgetting that for a second, this is a pretty interesting initiative, right? These are three jumbo companies with 1.2 million employees that said, you know what, the healthcare financing system, you know, via traditional insurance carriers and, and their contracts with medical groups and how everything's set up, they're like, it doesn't work for us anymore. We're getting bad results for our companies and for our employees, and we're going to scrap it and we're going to build something new. So what do you think about Haven Healthcare? And do you think they can actually make an impact and do something differently? I don't know is the short answer. The long answer is, in my opinion, thinking that, you know, one of the first things they said they're going to do is apply technology to healthcare in a way that it hasn't been done before. And obviously, with folks like Amazon, they can call on a skill set within that organization to really help them do that. Like, I'm sure they can come up with all sorts of, you know, wonderful technology. You know, Chase brings some, like, financial muscle so they'll be able to get the money to do it. That's, you know, so money's not an issue and longevity's not the issue. So here, they're trying to solve something that they'll have a lot of money and they'll have a lot of time. Okay, that's helpful, all right? If you want to do something meaningful, like, you know, I don't know, build the Golden Gate Bridge, you need a lot of money and a lot of time. Because that's (laughs) a big project and it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. So that's, I mean, that's good. I think one of the problems with, venture capital as a model for fixing healthcare is that it's like trying to build the Golden Gate Bridge with a million bucks in a couple of weeks. It's like, you can have a great idea, but you just don't have enough money. You don't have enough time because the, the horizon of a venture fund is 10 years and you think that $100 million is enough money. It's such a big ordeal that you're probably going to need, I don't know, maybe half a billion dollars and you're probably going to need like 20 years. And if you have the longevity to actually do that, then maybe you'll have something but no mm-hmm. venture fund would ever be able to do that. So it's like, it's like too, it's too little money and too little time. So that's why I don't mm-hmm. think the model necessarily plays out very well. Okay, then number two is, if you are going to apply technology as the quote unquote, and the technology is just, is just a means to an end, right? So the point is, it's not the question of, of if technology will be helpful. It has to be applied in the right place at the right time. Okay, fine. What would be an example of that? Well, I think the example of that, you know, frankly, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but I think the example of that is Uber, right? Where they used technology to basically circumvent a group of quote unquote providers. And those providers were taxi drivers. They used technology to circumvent those providers. And I will tell you that I think that is actually the most helpful application of technology in healthcare is basically you need to circumvent these people. And by circumvent these people, I mean these people who are providing low-value healthcare. What is low-value healthcare? It's either low-quality healthcare, it's either overpriced healthcare, or it's a combination of the two. So the reason why markets work or don't work is because people are able to vote with their feet, and they're able to vote with their dollars. And today, people are not able to vote with their feet and vote with their dollars. But if you were able to vote with your feet and vote with your dollars and you had technology to do so, you would have a much better patient or consumer experience. Are there great doctors out there? Absolutely. Are there fantastic hospitals out there? Absolutely. Are there high value 
doctors and hospitals out there. Absolutely. It's really the use of technology in healthcare is really to fix the quote unquote mismatch. And I've, of course, I have a video about this as well. It's yes. really about fixing the mismatch problem. So I don't think you have to throw out the, you know, you know, I'm not big into paving the jungle. Like I just, I just don't think that's very practical. So what you need to do is, is you need to find a driver who's available, who's willing to take the amount of money you're willing to pay to take you to your destination. And guess what? That's what Uber does. You need to find a doctor that does exactly what you need to do, that has availability, you know, in the way that you, you know, need that availability, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you need to match them up. This already happens today and it already mm -hmm. works. And you know how it happens? It happens for doctors themselves when they use healthcare services. So for example, when a doctor gets sick, they don't have much of a mismatch problem. Right. They've asked their colleagues and they say, who's the best doctor in this particular you know, area? That's right. And that does not always mean the most expensive. Right. Because right. they've actually done, there was a company about 10 years ago that looked at this and they've actually found that when doctors received healthcare services themselves, they received less healthcare services than the typical public. The doctors themselves got less. Because I know that when I go in as a physician and another physician treats me and he's like, well, I want to order the vitamin D. I'm like, I don't need a, a vitamin D. What are you doing? So, so he's, not, he's not even going to do it. Right. I think that's a great analogy is applying the, the Uber technology. And so you think that's what, what Haven may end up doing. I don't know if it's what they're going to end up doing, but I just know that healthcare absolutely works in pockets of America for pockets of Americans. That's why when people say, we have the best healthcare system in the world, right? How is that possible? How can you have people say that we have the best healthcare system in the world? And at the same time, have people say we have the worst healthcare system in the world. Right. It's because the people who say we have the best healthcare system in the world are the people who are the pockets of people in the pockets of places that can make it happen. And guess what? That's not a lot of people. So it's transforming that. It's bringing it to the masses. If you can use technology to actually do that, to bring that to the masses, what will happen is you will absolutely have, and, and, and what does that mean? There has to be winners and losers. There has to be winners and losers. In order for this to work, there has to be winners and losers. That means that hospitals will lose volume. Doctors will lose volume. You have to have that happen. In fact, I would say that that is a sign of success. If you don't have doctors and hospitals losing volume, you are not successful. Today is May 23rd, 2019. There are solutions out there that will help do that. Yeah. It's not like we have to wait for the employer who is, is eager to solve the problem and match their people with the right providers and help them get there. There are tools to do that today, for sure. There is, and I'll give you just a short uh, example of how that actually happened. There was a, a very small hospital group called Forest Park that had a hospital in Dallas and one in San Antonio. I think they had a couple more, and they intentionally were out of network, and they were partly physician-owned, and the whole strategy, I think, I think the guy's in jail now, was to have the physicians who were part owners do all of their surgeries at this out-of-network hospital so that they could just sock it to the insurance carrier. And so you would have surgeries that in-network were like mm -hmm. 19 grand and they were charging like 75 grand for them. We at Compass, one of the things that we did for our Dallas-Fort Worth area clients is we steered everybody away from that hospital. And the same surgeons would operate at other hospitals. I'm like, look, you like, you like this doctor? That's fine. You're going to do him down the road to Presbyterian. You're not going to do him at Forest Park. And we literally, one of our customers said, you saved us 75 grand. We, could, we just paid for Compass for like the next 50 years with just that one surgery. <laughs> and Forest Park went out of business. I can't say it's solely because of Compass, but the point is, is that we steered volume away from those folks and they went out of business. 
it was steerage, but it was also forced competition, right? I mean, there was no competition at play behind the veil of the network. You know, they were now faced with forced competition, which is That's great. right. That's- they, were, they were delivering a low value product, which the market responded to by voting with their feet and not going there. That's a wonderful example of how true market forces can, can work when you allow them to play out. And yet we've got a, an election coming up, right? And it seems like there are a lot of candidates who want to talk about Medicare for all. And you recently did, did a, a piece on this about uh, falsified wait lists, which I thought was incredibly insightful. So acknowledging that we're going to have a lot of politicians who, in my opinion, Democratic and Republican politicians are, you know, scum of the earth. They are going to be trying to convince the American public that Medicare for all is a path to healthcare nirvana. So what do you think about that? Do you think that a government program can solve a lot of the problems that we, we talk about here? It's not a perfect analogy, but when you think about, okay, what is one of the reasons that we're talking about Medicare for all is that we're talking about essentially inelastic demand. You have people in a crisis situation, whether it be a near-death experience or pain or suffering or I can't see anymore. And then you have the private market taking advantage of that inelastic demand. It's basically like saying, okay, your house is on fire and we only have private fire departments right? They're going to be like, oh, it looks like you have a fire. Guess how much money we're going to charge you to put out that fire, right? We, you know, we could charge, you know, charge any amount of money and you would pay it to put out the fire in your house. Right. Okay. So that, that sort of precedent exists for the government stepping in when those types of goods or services are. Okay. That's fine. It's important to understand that healthcare is not always like that. Okay. Not all healthcare. So, it, you know, you can't say that all of healthcare should be, you know, lumped into one bucket. You can't say that 17% of the economy is lumped into one bucket like that. Okay, fine. Right. Right. So what is sort of the analogous situation? In my mind, it's actually the Department of Defense. Okay. So here we have a sole purchaser of defense equipment, Right. And now the government doesn't manufacture tanks and planes and guns, right? We use private industry to do that, but there's only one purchaser, right? So mm-hmm. single, we have single payer. We have single payer national defense, okay? Yep. And, and, you know, I'm not going to say that that's wrong. You know, that's probably the right thing to do. If we had single payer healthcare, it might look like the defense department. And what do I mean by that? A very intertwined, non-transparent relationship between the Pentagon and defense contractors. Guess where the defense contractors hire a lot of their executives from? They're all retired generals and admirals and colonels. Right. And guess what drives the budget for like which planes and blah, blah, blah. It's like the defense contractors drive a lot of that. You really need this plane. You really need this tank. And there've been lots of situations where it's like, no, we really don't. Or, you know, it's not really what like what the the defense contractor made actually ended up not really aligning with what the military needed. You know, the classic example for that was the Humvees without any shielding on the bottom of them when we first went to Iraq. So, you know, they were just like literally like throwing these things together because they didn't have any uh, stuff on the bottom of them to protect them from the IEDs. So I'm just saying that we need to go into this eyes wide open and just know that if we go into a single payer situation, it won't happen overnight, but if you go into a single payer situation, it probably will evolve over time into what defense contracting looks like where you'll have this internecine relationship between the government and the hospital systems, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there will be a lot of, you know, I don't want to say nepotism or cronyism or what have you, but then the question becomes, okay, is the output from that type of internecine relationship, is that output better than what we currently have? And I don't know the answer to that. 
it's a complicated situation. I think there's some people who are, you know, they're perfectly happy with healthcare. There's other people who, you know, have trouble accessing it. So certainly there needs to be change of some sort. And I think the debate on whether it's a government-based solution or a marketplace-based solution will continue to rage on with people having lots of different perspectives. I do think given the divided state of our nation uh, from a politics standpoint, getting single-payer or Medicare for all pushed through seems to be, it would be quite a challenge. I would put my money on marketplace first, but you never know. Then there's the, there's the flip side too. So there's, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, okay? And we also have other industries in America where we have inelastic demand, where we don't have single payer, but we have government regulated monopolies. And that is with utilities, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I, you know, in Texas, if the, in the summer, if the electric company decided that they wanted to charge, you know, quadruple the cost of electricity in the summer, guess what? I would pay for it because I have to, because right. there, I'm, there's no way I'm not running my air conditioning when it's 104 degrees outside. And the government grants the power company a monopoly in order to be able to not have to have duplication of all the power lines, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe we don't want to have as much duplication of hospital beds and MRIs and ORs, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's fine. But then you got to move into the, okay, you're going to be allowed to have a profit that is a, you know, return on your, you know, capital structure. And I'm not saying that system's perfect either, right? Because then that encourages, you know, power companies are just loaded with debt and power companies do not, you know, they, you know, I mean, how forward thinking and how forward looking are they? They don't, they don't tend to be very quote unquote innovative. You know, we don't have like innovative ways of delivering electricity. It's the same way we've always delivered electricity. So that's not a perfect solution either. But again, I'm saying, that is a solution. So it doesn't have to be free market versus, you know, single payer. I mean, that's a false dichotomy. There are other things that can be done from a policy standpoint to address this. One of the things is just about the whole transparency piece. I mean, at the end of the day, you can buy a used car in California or Texas or wherever, right? And guess what the states have? They have anti-lemon laws, right? You Mm got to be transparent about the used car that you're selling. And that's That's mandated by law. Okay, I'm not against laws. I mean, anybody who's against regulation is against traffic lights and stop signs. I mean, that is traffic regulation. And I'm, compl- I'm, I'm for that. I'm for, so, I'm for stop lines. So I'm for stop signs and, and lights, right? I, I, I'm, in, I'm in favor of those. Yeah. So like, okay, well, we can be smart about it. You don't, put a, you don't put a stoplight at every single intersection in America, right? You can be smart about it. And yeah. so I think that there are absolutely things that can be done on the policy level. I'm not saying no policy. There are things that can be done on the policy level to absolutely improve things. The last thing I'll say is, is that there was a very famous study from Princeton that actually made the floor of Congress that showed that policy is not reflective of the general public's sentiment. Of course they, not. They're not connected. They're like, oh, okay, well, the, the policies that we put in place should reflect the will of the people, right? And the, the Princeton states said, well, no, they actually don't. But then they looked at the sentiment of the top 10% of income earners versus policy, and they almost perfectly correlated. Now, isn't and that so we, we know, and you can, you can look this up. It's a very famous study. To a certain extent, we in America will have the types of quote-unquote policy reforms that we are looking for when the top 10% want them. That's right. Or you, cha- or you change the way that pol- politics is financed, one or the other. So I, again, I'm just trying to be very pragmatic. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm just saying that's kind of how policy works in America. And it's naive to not think that. So that but, needs but, to be understood. 
but I, but I think calling it out for what it is, is important because there are many people who don't understand that. And, and I think it's very clear that our leaders on Capitol Hill are not necessarily acting in, in uh, to your point, in the will, in the interest of, of the people or, or you know, acting you know, on behalf of what people want. You may not have an answer for this next question, but you know, right now you're, you're focused on A Healthcare Z. What's next for Dr. Eric Bricker? The short answer is, is I don't know. I do not have a, um, a long-term strategy. And for now, I'm just really enjoying spending time with my family. And I'm really enjoying making these videos. And, you know, for the time being, that's what I'm going to focus on. All right. Well, I think you're doing a great job with them. Um, I personally enjoy them. And uh, I know many of my colleagues do as well. So kudos to you for, for helping to uh, make the, the soil more fertile for you know, all of us who are trying to drive change in the industry. I think it, it's great. And I think we're, we're looking forward to uh, you know, seeing what you put out next. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate it. You bet. You bet. Eric, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? What do I do for fun? I'll tell you what I do for fun. I love my dogs. I mean, you want to do something to improve the health of your life? Get a dog. There you go. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. And I think we talked before, before the interview, you know, we've got our two puppies and, uh, you know, they bring a new energy to the household for They're like sure. the best thing ever. They are the best thing ever. All right. So for people who are listening to this, who have not yet, you know, experienced a healthcare Z very simple www.ahealthcareZ.com where you can learn more. Eric, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day to, to chat with us. Been a great conversation and, and hopefully insightful for our listeners. Pleasure has been all mine, Mike. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to A Healthcare Z's website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content we're bringing to you on the show. Let us know what you think with a review. It's super easy and takes five seconds. Just open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom of the page and let us know what you think with the review. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.